Today we're going to be in Acts 21, verses 27 to 36. And God's scripture says this, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, the him is Paul, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he, had, he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed crying out away with him this is the word of the lord thanks be to god church let's pray together jesus thank you for being in this place thank you for meeting with us we ask lord that you continue to do so as we have worshiped you you have met your people in the worship of your name Lord, and as we have now opened up your word and we're going to dive into it, Lord, would you meet with your people in the reading and exaltation of your word. Lord Jesus, bless us. May we walk away from this place full in our souls, light in our steps, with our eyes focused on you. Holy Spirit, continue to have your way in and through our midst that we may be built up, that we may go and do the mission you have called us for. Jesus, we love you, and we are so glad that you love us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. Uh, for one final time this morning, good morning. Good morning. My name is Tommy Bello. I'm the youth and young adult pastor here, and if I've not had the chance to meet you, I want to. And so let me extend and add my welcome to the welcomes that have been given. For those of you who are new or newer, welcome. We are glad you are here. For those of you who are regular attenders, welcome back. We are glad you are here. And for those of you who are members, welcome home. We are glad you are here. Friends, if you've been with us for any of the last of what seems like a year almost, we have been moving through the book of Acts in a series that we call The Mission of the Spirit, where we are looking at and learning this one simple idea through 28 chapters of this book. What the Holy Spirit has been up to then He's up to now. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever is doing the same thing yesterday, today, and forever. And so in order to walk in step with that person of the, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, we need to know and be imbued with the person of who he is to be able to go out and then join him on this mission. Last week, our elder Scott Rice brought the word, and thank you, Scott, for doing that. And he did, brought us a good word on this idea of surrender, which is going to play a very integral part in the next two 
Sundays, this one and the next. As we dive into this story, we started reading in Acts. Now, before we fully dive into it, I have to give you a caveat. This sermon is just part one of a two-part sermon. So if you're going to miss next week, and that's okay for whatever reason, I implore you, watch it when we put it online. And if for some reason you're watching this because you were not here this week, and you're going to be here next week, watch this before that one. Because neither sermon is going to make sense without the other. Today, to fully understand what the mission of the Holy Spirit is in this text that we have read, we're going to be talking about an idea that most of us do not like talking about, but I agree 100% of us hate. And it's the idea of injustice. Today, friends, we're going to talk about what does God want us to believe about injustice so that we may be properly formed and ready to then understand what God is calling us to do about injustice. Let me say that again so you can get that. Today, we're going to talk about what does God want us to believe about injustice so that we may be properly ready to know what God is calling us to do about injustice. All you have to do is go to places like James where it says human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. As we're going to see, human attempts at achieving the mankind's form of justice goes nowhere. So first we must understand, what does God mean when he talks about justice? What does he want us to understand about that? So that then we are ready to go out and actually do the thing he is calling us to do. Okay? So here we go. This is not a typo. This is a horrible section of scripture. What do I mean by that? It is not horrible in the sense of useless. It is horrible in the sense of horrendous. It's an ugly passage to read. It's a passage that if you're just skimming right by it, you read it and you're a little bit uncomfortable with it, but the discomfort goes away, give it enough time. But if you actually sit and dwell with it like we're going to do today, it's going to make you feel uncomfortable because you're going to realize how horrible what is going on actually is. Many of us have parts or passages of the Bible that we love to read, that we know that when we read them, we so easily connect with God through them. For some, it's the Psalms. If for more of those who have a historical bet, it's First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. For those of us who love to study and get deep in theology and the idea of God, it's places like Romans. This passage is not on anybody's list, I promise you. It's just not. It's not a great passage for that kind of thing, but it is a great passage because it's part of God's word. And God calls all of his word timeless truth. Right? So this section of scripture is horrible. Because it causes us to confront the reality of our present world. Friends, our world is broken. Most of us know that. Most of us always do the most that we can to avoid thinking about that. But our world is broken because of sin. Our world is full of things that we will see are unjust. Our world is full of injustice, and our world is full of attempts at making it right, but actually just add on to the mountain of wrong. We know that. We really do. And the older you get, the more you reckon with that idea, because the more you have experienced that injustice. And we see that on full display here. But to make sure we're on the same page, what is just? We commonly define it as this idea, what is morally right and fair. That is just. We want to live in a just world. We want to treat people in a just 
way. This is a good and right sentiment. Hear me when I say this. This isn't a bad thing to chase. God is a just God. And so when we are trying to live just rights, just lives, excuse me, when we are trying to see justice happen in our world, what we are really saying then is we want people to be treated fairly, impartially, so no favorites, and reasonably, no extremes. This sounds like a world we want to live in because it's a good world. We want a world where things that are right and true are always right and true. And we want to live in a world where people are treated that way. Here's the problem. One, the problem is sin, absolutely, but I just mentioned that already. Here's the problem with the justice of man or mankind. It's not enough. This is not enough. When you look at the justice of man and compare it to the justice of God, we realize that sometimes we like to think of the justice of God as a higher level of justice. Friends, that's not true. It's the only level of justice. And everything else is a pale imitation or a grasp at it. Friends, this is good. It's just not good enough. The justice of God says this, people are to be treated how their creator treats them. Which at first you think, okay, doesn't that mean God treats people fairly and partially and reasonably? Yes. And more. God is perfect. We see in places like Genesis 1.27 where God says we are made in his image. And he treats us like we are reflections of God. You know how many times I'm grocery shopping on a Friday and I turn my grocery cart down an aisle and there is an old person walking there going far slower than I'd like to go? And I have to have the same conversation with myself every single time. I could easily dart around this lady. But why? And so what? Is that treating her fairly, reasonably, or impartially? No. Is that treating her like an image of God that she is? Probably not. Do you see the difference? It might be reasonable for me to go around her. I know this is a silly example, but it happens. It might be reasonable for me to go around her because I'm in a rush and she probably knows it's okay, you know, he's got young legs and he's in a hurry, whatever, he'll learn. But is it treating her like an image of God, giving her the respect that she deserves? Probably not. Do you see the difference? We get to places like Exodus 22 where God is giving the law to Moses and Moses is giving the law to God's people. And he reminds them that they are sojourners. It's a word we don't use that often. But sojourners, it says in the ESV. Uh, the idea of being a people displaced from their home, trying to get back. And God tells them, when you find sojourners in your midst, Israelites, do not oppress them. Treat them fairly because you were sojourners. What's God getting at? He's getting at this idea that, hey, when you were the least and the lost, when you were displaced and you sojourners yourself, look at how I treated you, right? Look at how I treated you. So treat them the same way. Don't oppress them. Then we get to places like Psalm 19. And here, in these verses, King David talks about this idea of the law of God, his commandments, both written and spoken, and how the law of God is good for us to follow. But what's really amazing about the law of God is God didn't have to make the law bless us. It could have just been, follow me, good, or don't follow me, bad, and here are the consequences. And he'd be right, because not following God leads to death. But instead, it says, don't follow me, this is the way unto death, but when you follow me, here's the way unto life and you receive the reward and the benefits of that. Not just then, but now. He says, when we follow that, it revives us. 
I can't tell you how many people I know who are 50, 60, 70, 80, and they died at 20 because they're just walking zombies. It revives us. It brings us joy. It brings us joy, which is so lacking in our world. Do you know that the CDC did a national use, risk use survey behavior that came out with the results earlier this year, and they described this idea of persistent hopelessness in about 50% of teenage girls. One out of every two teenage girls you meet will self-report that they are persistently hopeless, which means they are depressed and struggle with depressiveness for at least two weeks straight. That's how they defined it. But God's justice brings hope and joy, which is so lacking in our world. And it brings holy enlightenment, not only to our eyes, but our eyes, that we may see rightly once again. We may see through the fog of darkness. This is the justice of God. This is how God treats his creation in a way that he deems so appropriate. And this is not what we find in Acts 21. Not at all. In Acts 21, to remind you, Paul has now been in Jerusalem for almost a week. He has come because he wants to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost with his people. It is a huge feast. Jews from all over the region would swell to Jerusalem for the, for the high feast that they had. This population of the city multiplies by at least triple, if not quadruple. We're talking about 2.5, 3, 3.5 million people in a town built for like 300,000. It is swollen with people. And so Paul is there for almost a week, and he knows, because of what Agabus has said earlier in the chapter, and because of what his meeting with the elder James has showed him, that there are people out for his head. And so he is going through the motions, not just because he has to, but because he wants to and feels called to, that surrender piece. He's going through the things that James has advised him to do because he wants to be here. And right before that seven-day period is up, the people who are after him find him. They see him in the temple complex. And they think, ah, this is our opportunity to strike. And so they do. First, they start lying about what Paul is doing. Let me read that part for you again. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the temple, against the people and the law and this place. Paul's dissidents, his accusers, have a very narrow view of Paul. To them, he represents everything wrong with the world. He is a man who was raised in their faith. He was raised to be a devout Jewish man, to be a teacher of their law and to be an enforcer of their law. And now he's turned coat in their eyes. He's a traitor. When the farthest, that's the farthest thing from the truth. They think he spits on the name of Judaism when actually all he preaches is the fulfillment of Judaism. He says, hey, all our laws and all our prophecies, all our, everything we believe, you know, it was pointing to somebody the entire time, right? He came. We missed him. <laughs> That's it. It's ironic that the people who think Paul is a traitor to Judaism fail to understand that he's actually its greatest advocate. But they lie. Injustice. Has, that everyone, everyone, has anyone ever experienced someone lying about them? Rumor spreading? It's not kind in the least. It's dangerous in the worst. And so they lie. But then not only that, they falsely accuse him of defiling the temple. This is a double whammy. 
One, when they accuse him, they say he defiled the temple. Right, the temple is a sacred holy place. It has these, uh, it's mostly a rectangle shape, but it has these different areas. And you, have, you need to have different qualifications to get closer to the center. But all of it's considered sacred and holy. If you're not a tenant of Judaism, if you're not a follower of Yahweh, you can't even come in, let alone get into the inner parts. Paul obviously can get into most of the inner parts because of who he is as a Jew. But they say he has defiled the temple. He has defiled, he has sullied the place where our God meets with us. Here's the irony about that. You know what their evidence is? They don't have any. Read the passage again. The second part of verse 28. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple. He defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him, with Paul in the city, and they supposed, they supposed Paul brought him into the temple. They supposed. He probably brought that guy in. There's probably tens of thousands of people in here we can't actually see, but, you know, our hunch is good. We know it. You ever been accused of something that there's literally no proof of? You understand what Paul's getting at here, what Paul's experiencing here. They accuse him of defiling the most sacred place. But I said this was a double whammy. That's the first part, the false accusation with no merit, no grounds. But the second part is that they're hypocrites. All you have to do is go back to the times of Jesus where Jesus has to go into the temple and turn over the money changers and their table because it defiled the temple to bring in Roman currency. They were so anti-Roman because that was their conquest. They were their, the people who conquered them. Anything Roman couldn't come into the temple at all. But it's okay. You can change your Jewish currency for, or your Roman currency for Jewish currency at the temple so that you can go tithe to God. We'll just overlook that. No problem. They're hypocrites. They've been defiling the temple for years, but now it's convenient to point out when someone else is supposedly doing it. Injustice. What's even crazier about this is that they want to ground his claim about defiling the temple about a man who is supposedly a Greek. I know in our passage it says the Jews from Asia. Asia at this point is not a continent as we know it. It is a, it is a region. It is an area. One of the main cities of that area being Ephesus, where Paul was at just two chapters ago. That's where he picks up the guy Trophimus, the Ephesian. These Jews are from that same region. So the issue with have is not even with someone random. It's someone from their own city. Someone from their own neighborhood around the block that they have an issue with him on a racist basis, a racial basis. He's a Gentile. He can't come in. That gives us the perfect excuse to pin this on you, Paul. Injustice. But then they target him. Did you catch the detail when, when they start to seize him? They don't beat him yet. They drag him out of the temple and then they shut the doors. Why? If I'm really trying to get you, why don't I just beat you to a pulp right here and there? Why would I take you outside? In Jewish law, someone could claim sanctuary and asylum in the temple if they felt that they were so wrongly accused. Paul was in the temple. He could have just said, you're wrongly accusing me. I demand a fair trial. And they would have had to said, shoot. All right, you get it. You wait here. They drag him out before he even gets a chance. And they bar the door so he can't go back in and claim what is rightfully his. That's malicious. You ever feel like you've been targeted by somebody? You ever feel like you've actually have been targeted by somebody? Well, you found out after the fact? Injustice. You know what Paul's experiencing here. But then they beat him with the intent to kill him. They beat him with the intent to kill him. I don't know if you've gotten in a lot of fights in your life. I don't necessarily need to know that right now. 
I got one when I was in eighth grade, ninth grade, somewhere around there. It was terrifying. It was not great. That person didn't try to kill me. They were just angry with me, and I angry with them in, in turn. That was terrifying. I cannot imagine fighting, uh, facing a mob of people, blood-crazed, who want my head on a stick. They were not just beating him just because they felt like him. They wanted him erased from the planet. I cannot stress this enough. Injustice. It's cruel, and it's malicious, and it's a byproduct of sin, and it taints our world. Friends, we know this. We've either experienced it ourselves, or we've seen it in our loved ones, or we've seen it in our communities, or we've seen it in our country, and we see it in our world. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. That leaves us with a question, then. When we are met with that injustice, what do we do? I already told you from the, from the get-go that we're not going to get into the weeds for this sermon. The action that God calls us to, we're going to talk about next week. So you might be confused as to why we are asking this question. I bring it up in part one to remind you, God has very clear instructions and has a very clear heart we see in the word and we see in the deeds of the Holy Spirit that he does not call his people to be on idle hands. God absolutely calls his people to bear the arms he has given them when it comes to not just sin and the darkness and the demonic, but injustice. But friends, I want to be clear. Just because we're not talking about that this morning doesn't mean we're not going to talk about it. It's just not today. But then what do we do? Why are we asking this question then? If we're not talking about what do we do, Tommy, why are we talking about what do we do? We're asking this question because for many of us, when injustice comes to meet us, whether it's personal or, again, in the circles we swim in, or it's corporate, or it's global, we are tempted to fall into the lie. We are tempted to fall into the trap that something must be done now. And if God's not going to do it, I am. It's an intoxicating temptation, friends. It's an intoxicating temptation. We end up believing either God is not a God of his promises, or that God's plan is delayed, or God's plan's just not good enough, and the missing piece is me. And so I will take into my own hands the justice that needs to be served, and I will right the wrongs of the world, and I will right the wrongs of my life, or the wrongs of my neighbor. Friends, I said at the beginning, I'll say it again, Human justice does not achieve the actual kind of justice we're looking for. You want to know how I know? I can give you about a billion examples. Here are two. We have more sex slaves, including children, now than ever. We could have er eradicated slavery. We could have. But the, the actual truth is, whether people want to believe it or not, is corporately, we don't want to. So we don't. It's convenient. Do you know that there is more money on the planet now than there ever has been ever? And yet we can't solve problems like world hunger. Do you know that if you just take about 10 to 15% of the top five billionaires in the world, which is nothing in their bank accounts, it's a drop in the bucket, they can eradicate, eradicate world hunger by themselves. Five individuals can take care of the world's biggest problem. Do you know how many people die of starvation a day? Nine million. That's one every four seconds. Two people just died. If human justice could fix the problem, human justice would have already fixed the problem. 
If we believe that Eric Elias says, I will be the missing piece that rights the wrongs of the world, it should have been done already. But friends, the evidence is clear all around us. I gave you two big examples. There are a hundred other little ones. Our justice, our version of justice and our means of justice does not bring about the world we so desperately want. It doesn't. It doesn't mean we don't play a part. It doesn't mean we don't have stuff to do. Again, that's next week. But first, we need to understand when God calls us to action against injustice, we need to understand how and why. We need to understand what God is asking us to believe about injustice before we actually start to tackle injustice because that belief shapes how we do. That belief is necessary to be an effective and powerful participant in the mission of the Spirit as he acts against injustice. When you read this passage that we read this morning and you read it by itself, you look at what you, you can look for what God's trying to do and you're not going to find anything. Because in those nine verses, it's just details. It's just details of what's happening to Paul. Remove from what happens before and remove from what happens after. You don't see what God is up to. It's the same idea. If we don't have the right understanding and belief of how God wants us to look at these things and what he has said is true when it comes to justice and injustice, we are going to fail to understand the part that we have to play. Because if human intention was good enough, we'd live in a perfect world. We'd be at Eden again. And friends, we are not. So what do we do? I'm going to read for you some verses out of Romans 12. Romans 12 is a letter that Paul himself wrote to the church in Rome toward the end of his third missionary journey. You want to know why that's important? Here's why. Paul wrote this letter, what we're about to read, before, before the events that we read this morning happened. Before, not after, before. Keep that in mind. Paul wrote these words before he tried to get lynched by a mob. Rejoice in hope. <laughs> Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A lot of that we're going to touch upon again next week. Because a lot of that has to do with the action. But friends, this is the part I want you to highlight. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You should be terrified at those words. Do you think you want God? to be the one who calls the account of injustice against you in your life? Friends, you don't want that. He's a big God, and he's a fair God. But he's a loving God, and that's why he sent Jesus. Why are we talking about this? Friends, what does God want us to believe about vengeance as it pertains to the mission of the Spirit? He has always been righting the wrongs of the world. Justice has not been far from him, as it says in the Psalms. The Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of its sins and judgment, as it says in John 16. This is something that has always been near to dear to his heart. This is something that James says is true religion, that we take care of the orphans and the widows. This is something that Jesus says when he's come, I have come for the least of these, that the blind may see, that the lame may walk, that the lepers would be healed, that the poor would receive good news. This has always been on God's heart, always. But here's what God knows that sometimes we fail to remember. I need to do it. Because it's the only way it's going to stick. I need to do it, because it's the only way it's going to stick. 
Friends, when we are tempted to believe the lie and the trap that I need to take matters of injustice into my own hand, what is actually ends up happening is this. We stop taking God seriously. Here's what I mean. I don't mean in the sense of God being serious, like, oh, God, lighten up. You know, crack a joke. Why are you so serious? Not like that. That's not the kind of serious I mean. What I mean is we stop having full confidence in God. We, st- we lose what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.1. 1, Faith, which is the assurance of things and the hope for things not yet seen. The conviction, some translations it says, for the things not yet seen. When we stop taking God seriously, we stop trusting God. Because here's a really random thought I had the other day that I knew was from the Holy Spirit. Do we take God as seriously as God takes himself? God never doubts himself. God knows his perfect track record. He knows who he is, not in an arrogant kind of sense, but in a good and holy kind of sense, and praise God for that. God is never afraid that he's going to fail to come through. God is never afraid that his promises will fall flat. God knows as soon as he says it, it's a done deal. It is written in the stars and in the book of living. It is a done deal. But do we treat God's promises the way that God treats God's promises? Because if we took God seriously, we would not expect him to fail. If we took God seriously, we would not expect his promises to fall through. Then when God actually says, I am going to right the wrongs, we say, yes, I believe you, versus, yes, I believe you, but no, I really don't. Yes, I believe you, but it's taking too long. Yes, I believe you, but I want to get my hands bloody. I want to right the wrongs. Yes, I believe you, but mm, forgiveness isn't enough. Yes, I believe you, but mm, that wasn't enough, God. I'm not satisfied. If we took God seriously, the way God takes himself seriously, we will come to understand that when we read things like vengeance is mine, God sees every single one of the wrongs that have happened in the world. He sent Jesus to cover it, to take care of it. He sent to mercy first because he wants all those to come to a loving and saving faith in him. But friends, do not be mistaken. The cross is the arguably greatest day in our history. Tied for second place is the birth of Jesus and what all of the Old Testament and parts of Revelation called the day of the Lord. Because that's when vengeance comes. That's when the rights or the wrongs are righted. That's when the world truly has justice. That day is coming, not to scare us, but that day is when all evil, all sin, all darkness is finally gone. It's the day you actually hope for. It just doesn't look like in a package that seems very nice. But that's the day you actually want. If you want darkness and sin and injustice in your life gone, that means you want it gone forever. Otherwise, it's like a cancer and it can come back. It's either all or nothing. The same way with God's promises. It's either all or nothing. I can't believe God is good and will meet me in, when I need provision, but that I, I, over here I can't believe that God's not going to come through when it comes to injustice. If I don't believe one, I don't believe all of it. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's either true and right and good, or he's not. This is either it or it's not. But do we take God seriously? Friends, when we come to the place where we reckon honestly with God, not just in the things that we know about God, but in the person of Jesus that has met us and continues to long to meet with us as he lives in us and as he has given us the Holy Spirit, when we reckon with God this idea, God, do I actually believe the promises you have given me? 
Do I actually believe your word to be true? Do I actually believe your character to be upstanding, right, and holy? Then you believe in a God who has never, never, never lost sight of you or your loved ones or your community and this world. And you believe in a God who will and can and has promised to do all that is necessary to make this world the home it should have always been between us and him. You think we hate injustice? You think we hate sin? Where do you think we get that from? Just randomly? It's a, it's a random protein in our DNA? It's the spirit of the living God who gives us a taste of a taste of a taste of a taste of how he really feels about all this and how he longs for the day when it ceases to exist. It is erased from history and memory never to be dwelled upon or acted upon again. You don't think God longs for that day where the world is full of his justice and his goodness and his love and his mercy again. God longs for that day and God is bringing about that day. Friends, we can bring that day about. That's next week. But are we ready? Do we believe that that is what God is actually doing? Because if we don't, I'll say it again, we're not gonna be prepared to actually be active participants in the mission of the Holy Spirit as he moves making the world right again. You will be a tool with a chink in its blade. You will not be nearly as effective as you can. You will be doing things in the name of right, but it really is just propagating wrong. I'll give you one last easy example about why that's true, and then we're gonna pray. I had a moment a few weeks ago where I wanted a friend of mine to apologize to me for something that he did wrong against me. And it wasn't a major thing. But it was enough that it bothered me that I felt like I had to text him and say, hey, we need to talk about this. But as we were having that conversation, I realized something. I realized I wanted him to say he was sorry, not because I wanted to offer him forgiveness, but I wanted him to feel the shame and the guilt of having wronged me. How many times do we want to have conversations with people that wronged us, not because we want to offer them forgiveness like Jesus does, but because we want to stare them in the face and say, feel bad. Feel bad for what you did to me. Good. And then you walk away. It's not justice. It's not. Feels good in a moment. But it's not justice. That, you know what that changes? Nothing. Not a single darn thing. Friends, when we actually believe, I'll, give, I'll use my story as an example, when we actually believe that when I offer forgiveness to, to that person, not because they deserve it, but because God calls me to do so and he empowers me to do so, God has brought justice out into the world and he has made a wrong into a right. God never says he's okay with that. God never says he's okay with that. But he just says, I will make beauty from the ashes. Friends, do we believe and take God as seriously as he does? Because when we do, then we already say, all right, Yahweh, wherever it takes, however long it takes, wherever it asks of me, I am ready. Use me, not for my own glory, but for yours, Jesus, so that this world, so captivated by brokenness, will be made whole and right again because of you, Jesus. Friends, we long for that day. If you've been following Jesus for more than half a second, you long for that day. Because you don't just want to be saved. You don't want to just be healed and whole by yourself. You want the world with you. You want your loved ones with you. You want to see the name of Jesus lifted high upon the mouths and the hearts of other people too. Through that, to get to that destination takes injustice being eradicated. But it takes us being willing and able to play this game God's way. 
God's way. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He has promised. This does not go unnoticed. This does not go without my gaze seeing it. I will make it right. I have begun to in the person and the sacrifice of Jesus, but I will make it right. Will you join him along in that sense? That's what we must reckon with today. God, while I do and pursue justice your way, if not what's keeping me from it, why don't I take you as seriously as you take yourself? Would you join me in prayer? God, I feel bad for Paul. <laughs> These are the parts of the Bible I really don't like reading. Because it's cruel, it's sick, it's disgusting. And it's still happening. It's still happening, Jesus. Jesus, we long for the day where the broken are put back together. We long for the day for the overlooked to be fully seen. We long for the day that those are enslaved in any sense of that word, by humans, by their addictions, or by anything else that could be enslaving them. We long for the day where they are set free. Jesus, we know we long for that day, not just because it was a random thing we decided we wanted, but because your heart burns for that day and yearns for it. So Jesus, help us to long for that day like you do and help us to take seriously that no, we are not the ones who are going to achieve that day. You are and you will and you have promised so. You have been tirelessly and, and with much effort and much sacrifice marching towards that day. You have been storming the gates of hell to see that day come. And Jesus, we want to see that day come too, but we want to do it your way. We do not want to add to the chaos and the strife. We do not want to pursue justice in our own sense only to turn back and realize all we did was add on to the heap. Jesus, we want true transformation in our world. We want true rescue. We want true love. We want true mercy and grace to pour out. We want true forgiveness. We want real justice to flow. So Jesus, help us today not to run, but to wrestle in our hearts, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, if we actually trust you to do that, Jesus. You say in the Psalms, and like pretty much all of them, that you're gonna deal with the wicked. Do we believe that? Help us to reckon with that. And Jesus, if the answer is no, help us to have that answer be yes. Meet us, not to shame us, but meet us to uplift us, to transform us from the inside out, that we would be the very people we think we are being when we pursue justice on our own. You would make us those people so that as we will learn next week, when you call us out to stand against that which is so vile, our stand is not in vain because you stand with us.